Hey everybody, hope you're doing okay. I'm Jeffrey Rickman. I uh, you're listening to my podcast or watching it. It's called Plain Spoken. I've been doing this for a little bit over a year. It's my attempt to try and make sense out of the United Methodist Church and the Global Methodist Church. What happened to Methodism? Um, what role there is for faithful believers to play in the here and now? So I've done a lot of interviews. I've reported on different things going on around the connection. I'm a global Methodist pastor now. I'm unapologetically conservative, and my hope is that anyone who chooses to spend time with me comes away, if you're a conservative, with a better understanding of the theological underpinnings of, of what you believe and why. But if you're the opposite, if you're a liberal or progressive, that you feel like you understand conservatives a bit better and how they might see things. This particular piece uh, I've been wanting to do for like a month and a half. I've had several people write me saying, hey, man, you need to talk about what's going on in Rio, Texas. And the unfortunate thing is I know almost nothing about Rio, Texas, or that was the case. So I, I spent some time asking questions and talking to different people, looking around online. I still can't pretend to know the inner workings of what's going on there, but um, I can walk you through the the journey that I've taken, I, I've talked with, uh, I, I did reach out to the conference, but UMC annual conferences don't respond to me at this point. Um, my my main contact was Adam Thornton, who is the pastor of Dripping Springs, uh, formerly United Methodist Church. They're now already a global Methodist church. That's something I'll come back around to. Interesting uh, fact there. But um, he's been my primary contact, and then I've, I've talked to some other people that wanted to remain uh, anonymous, but um, Mr. Thornton, Reverend Thornton, he's uh, one of these churches that uh, the conference has filed suit against and is in litigation with with the annual conference. So if you don't know about it, earlier this year, the annual conference, Rio, Texas, filed suit against about 40 um, churches in its area because they were refusing to play ball. So here's that legal filing right here, and you'll see they just... <laughs> They uh, named all these different churches that they were filing against, um, and so I've had a lot of people ask me, you know, what what does it look like here? I've done a lot of legal coverage of uh, Oklahoma, where my stomping grounds are, but also uh, North Carolina and uh, North Georgia. There's been a lot of litigation, Florida, and I am not a legal expert, but people are so hungry for this stuff that they'll listen to me. I've, I've interviewed uh, a couple lawyers that talk about it. Um, long and short of it, they uh, they filed against those 40 churches asking for a declaratory judgment that the the defendants must comply with paragraph 2553. They also filed to have them pay $1 million in monetary relief. Uh, and while doing this, they stated that the board, uh, the Book of Discipline is a contractual agreement, not a religious document. So, we're going to zoom out and do some background and come back into the particulars, but it's very interesting. In Oklahoma, the uh, Supreme Court refused to interfere because they said the Book of uh, Discipline is a religious contract and they can't get involved in religious matters whatsoever. And so that was the case that the, the annual conference was making here in Oklahoma, and then the churches filing against the conference were arguing, no, you can apply neutral principles to this as a contract. Well, in Texas, they're doing the opposite. They're saying, the, the annual conference is saying, this is, just, just use neutral principles, make them obey 2553, and then the churches that they filed against are arguing, no, 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 no. Uh, it's a religious document. You have no 
moral claims here. So the the precedent is in some Masterson case that I have not read, but that's what they're hanging their head on. So what's going to go on? What's going to happen with this case? Uh, who are the different players? What are the different dynamics? What's the history here? That's what this podcast is going to be about. Hopefully, I'm going to do a satisfactory job for anybody watching. I, I always try and be fair and, and try not to assassinate any characters, uh, but I do have my way of seeing things, and I, I'm, I hope that's obvious. I'm not going to try and be an impartial observer here. Um, so anyway, if you appreciate what I do, I'm just going to encourage you to, to follow me on whatever platform you're watching me on and consider ways that you can support this. There are not many people doing this kind of work. I'm not very impressed with the people who are. That's why I started doing it. So if you agree with me that it needs to get done and I'm not terrible at doing it, you can go to plainspoken.locals.com and you can support me there. So anyway, let me take a drink real quick. All right. So in the lead up... <clears throat> to the all the the unfortunate ending here there's a, a story that begins long before 2007 but 2007 is when things really started heating up in the Rio Texas conference uh, Rio Texas I'm going to try and pull this up Rio Texas oh actually first off I wanted to show you this is the list of churches that um, are seeking disaffiliation on the second of well this weekend Saturday two days away from when I'm recording this. There are 17 churches that are applying for disaffiliation, or uh, they've gone through the disaffiliation process, and they are wanting uh, to be ratified. None of these 17 were of the original 40 that the conference filed suit against. There was already, uh, I want to say, 67 that have disaffiliated from this conference. And so this conference, um, once upon a time, was actually two conferences— uh, desert Southwest uh, Texas is that area, and then it was combined with the Rio Grande Annual Conference, which was something like the um, central jurisdiction. If you remember any of your history, that used to be a conference just for black people. Well, the Rio Grande Conference was just for Hispanic people, but it was financially insolvent. So this article that I found from 2012 was from when they decided to combine both conferences and their first uh, <laughs> look at Bishop Jones back then. Um, their first bishop was Dorf Bishop uh, Jim Dorf, and we'll talk about him in a little bit. But Jim Dorf followed on the coattails of uh, I forget the first bishop that they had already had two different annual conferences overseen by one bishop, and uh, Joel Martinez was his first name. He or was his name. He, he served these two conferences first, and then in 2012 they were combined. But at that point, Dorf had already been serving, and he was slated to, to serve through 2012. 2007 was when the liberal-conservative divide really took off in this conference. They, uh, they'd had some kind of detente where they maintained a sense of like decorum in the annual conference, but it became clear to conservatives that liberals were organized. They were making far more gains than they should really make in a conservative area like that. And so conservatives started to organize. They just weren't secretive about it. So the notion uh, from conservatives that were around at that time was that liberals were secretly doing it and conservatives just started publicly doing it. They started passing around questionnaires to uh, people that were delegates for election, asking where they stood on different issues, and uh, liberal leadership at the time just said, don't even, don't even respond. 
to these guys. So, of course, the only delegates that responded were conservative. And whenever the pamphlets got circulated with information on delegates, Bishop Dorf was uh, compelled to kind of disown it on the floor of annual conference. And things kind of heated up after that. Um, it, it got worse and worse over time. And Bishop Dorf was unfortunately not the man for the job. There's a, a lot of reason to believe that he was um, compromised in his leadership abilities in that annual conference. There were many times when he should have led with a firm hand and defended the Book of Discipline. There was, um, well, there was a young lady, well, uh, yeah, I think at that time she did identify as a young lady named, um, all right, her name was M. Barclay, and you should see her on your screen now. She's, I believe, now non-binary. It's been a while since I read up on her, but she was uh, trying to go through the ordination process in this annual conference, and she was openly gay, and so the Board of Ordained Ministry refused to interview her, and it got sent all the way up to the Judicial Council that then ruled she was entitled to an interview, and they finally interviewed her. Anyway, Long story short, Bishop Dorf ref refused to get involved, um, and I've, I've read a couple other things written by people online um, from the left that just indicated that he was kind of their inside guy, that he was a pushover, he, he really didn't take any action against activists in his annual conference, and it could be that he really was with them the whole time, but one of the things that came out about him uh, later was that he actually resigned um, a few months from his retirement date, uh, and it came out that he had been unfaithful with his wife. And so uh, he had a family that he wanted to keep safe, and odds are he tried to keep it contained, and somebody had this over his head, and finally it couldn't be contained anymore, so he got out ahead of it and uh, resigned. So, of course, this deals with inside baseball that I don't have access to, but for a, there was just a lot of behavior over the years that got people wondering why why has this happened? So he's not around to answer questions today. He died a few years ago, sadly. Um, and so that's kind of uh, the sadness that, that Bishop Schnazy stepped into. So Bishop Robert Schnazy is the current bishop. This is his page on the unitedmethodistbishops.org website. You can see that uh, he was assigned to the area of 2016, in 2016, Rio, Texas. He took Bishop Dorf's uh, position there. Um, he also has become the interim bishop for the New Mexico area. So I'll bring up the annual conference map here. Oh, come on. Let me drag you. Um, so you'll see Rio, Texas is down here. New Mexico is down here. And then there are four other conferences that are in uh, the, the state of Texas. So it's a, it's a big conference. Anyway, um, so Bishop Schnazy is in charge of both of those, and then um, he served as a, a big church pastor. He's served overseas. He's a native Texan. He's uh, Greek. He's been a part of the Greek system. But the one of the big things about him is he's an institutionalist. So he's written all these books, Five Practices, Fruitful Congregations, Five Practices, Fruitful Living, all these books. He's, he's published a lot of stuff on church growth, health, vitality. Problem is the guy doesn't seem to be very theologically astute at all. The reason I say that is I've talked to clergy that that served under him, and the man genuinely does not understand conservative religion. He he does not understand 
anything approximating a fundamentalist or literal approach to the Bible. Uh, he doesn't understand why on earth people would not get with the program on sexuality. Uh, there are clergy that have been called into his office that he just did not comprehend what the issue was. His understanding was that it really is kind of a slam dunk, that they would have gone ahead and changed his sexual ethics in their annual conference and in the, the, the denomination if it wasn't for clergy getting the people riled up. He doesn't seem to have any notion that the grassroots is actually quite conservative and theologically discerning. He sees himself as very smart and um, in some sense above the people and, and needing to lead them in the direction that sh they should go. And his, his whole demeanor is very nice, but it's also... Uh, well, okay, here's, let me just show you the announcement of the lawsuit that whenever they filed suit, the, remember the 40 churches did not file suit against the conference, the conference filed suit against them, they decided to publicly announce it and go on a big offensive on the front end, which is, you know, this is not the first time they filed suit against somebody, but it is the first time that they've gone on a big public offense like this. So here's how they went about it here. Hello, friends. I'm speaking to you today as Bishop of the Rio, Texas Conference. I want to update you on activities that relate to some of the churches that intend to disaffiliate from the United Methodist Church. But I first want to say that I'm appreciative of the majority of churches that want to disaffiliate who have approached this with mutual respect and, and in a way that follows church law. However, a number of churches have recently refused to engage in the approved separation process. These churches have attained counsel and are attempting to circumvent the disciplinary processes and thereby shift the cost of leaving in, onto the remaining churches. Therefore, the Board of Trustees of the Rio Texas Conference have filed a court petition against several United Methodist churches. We always want to avoid litigation, and the Rio Texas Conference is making every effort to follow the disciplinary processes with graciousness and integrity. That's, those have been the words we've used from the beginning. But I support this action of, of last resort by our trustees. Churches have a moral obligation to retirees past, present, and future. These churches recognize those commitments annually at charge conference and every charge conference they attended. Church law requires that churches take responsibility for their portion of the liabilities for the pensions of clergy and lay employees. And this is a matter of fairness. All other churches who have determined to disaffiliate have, have fully complied with church law. This action by the Conference Board of Trustees is entirely appropriate, giving their legal fiduciary responsibility in protecting the interest of the Rio Texas Conference and its pastors. It breaks my heart that we have come to this point but I remain hopeful that this will lead to a resolution that honors the obligations every local church has toward their pastors. The United Methodist Church and the Rio Texas Conference moving forward will be a diverse church where people work alongside one another despite their differences. We so the rest there is just kind of an inclusion uh, uh, diversity statement. Uh, but leading up to that, the, the disposition that the guy has it really bothers me because first off, he's saying, you know, we have some really good churches that played ball and I want to thank them. And we just have these really selfish ones that don't want to, uh, 
meet their fiduciary responsibilities. And, you know, we really don't want to take people to court, but, you know, we just had to because they're just not willing. So they went on the offensive this way. They took control of the narrative. And there is a lot of true stuff about it, uh, but there's some stuff that he doesn't mention. So, of course, the disaffiliation season began, and it became normal for annual conferences to expect that local churches pay two years of apportionments plus unfunded pension liabilities. And it uh, instantly became an issue. How is it that annual conferences are calculating the unfunded pension liabilities? And Westpath Investments is where all of our money is kept, and supposedly they had some actuarial tables that showed that things were not funded. There's some legitimate questioning about if if it ever really was unfunded. But if so, how is it that you calculate who pays what? The the churches, the 40 churches got together and said, we don't think we owe anything. Uh, they can't show us their work. They they got together. Um, let's see, they have so they have three huge churches in their annual conference. Two went ahead and disaffiliated. There was a third. Tom Deviney, Deviney, he was the senior pastor at Bethany. That's one of the, the the huge churches. He was meeting with the conference treasurer, representing these churches, just saying, hey, how are you coming up with this number? We don't think we should have to pay this. Um, they also were trying to figure out this legacy fund. Whenever Southwest Texas and Rio Grande annual conferences combined, there was a fund of somewhere between 7 and $9 million that could be used on this purpose. Uh, and one of the interesting things a lot of people don't know, there are five annual conferences in Texas. Well, maybe six if you encount, uh, include New Mexico. But the other four annual conferences in disaffiliation all applied conference funds to ameliorate the cost of disaffiliation for churches that wanted to go. This was not a conversation that the treasurer was willing to have. Kendall, uh, oh, Kendall Waller is his name. And so Kendall and uh, Deviney went back and forth, and uh, Deviney finally is saying, look, if you're not willing to talk about applying some of these undesignated conference funds to the balance, if you're not willing to talk about negotiating this down, then there's going to come a point where lawyers get involved, and we don't want that. But Waller's response was, bring it on. Supposedly, that's the quote. So anyway, lawyers, uh, there's a lawyer at Dripping Springs. His name is... Uh, Curtis J. Kerhychik, I think is his name. He works for Roman Howell, Smith, and Lee, and uh, he represents now not— so there were 40-some churches, 40, 41, 42. Immediately, like, 12 dropped out. They played ball. They got out the other way. They're, they're already gone. Uh, there are 27 left. 26 are at least going along with the legal process, but one hasn't been served. It's just been in an oversight, and they've said that they're not going to comply with anything until they're at least served. I, I forget the name of that church. I've probably written it down somewhere. So the other players here, we got Robert Schnazy, He's the bishop. We got Kendall Waller. He's the treasurer. There's Kevin Reed. He's the chair of the board of trustees. We're going to watch a video of him in a minute. Um, you have the church's lawyer, the 40, 40 some churches initially hired Curtis uh, Kerhechek. But then when the conference got clear that they wanted to file suit, they hired James Kimball of Clark Hill PLC. And this is a, a globally ranked, uh, huge law firm. So uh, one of the things I knew I wanted to highlight was in Oklahoma, whenever the annual conference was being represented legally, they got the biggest, richest law firm in the state to represent them 
similarly here, uh, they've gotten a huge uh, uh, place out of um, Dallas, I think, is where they're they're based. So um, in April of this year, 23, uh, the, the the conference treasurer just asked for a list of the 40 names of churches that he was representing. You know, Dripping Springs got Kerhechek. He decided to represent the 40 churches in just negotiation. If things hadn't escalated to the point of litigation or anything, he came and he sat down with the uh, the conference treasurer, and it just didn't go anywhere. Uh, Diviney came to the conclusion, followed by Kerhechek. They couldn't get a hold of the bishop. They couldn't get the bishop to ever even meet with them. They're not even sure to this day that the bishop knew about it while they were meeting with other conference officials and asking these questions. Finally, they said, look, if if the bishop isn't even going to meet with us, if there is no negotiation to even take place, then there is no point getting together. So at that point, they asked for the list of the churches that were discontent. They uh, submitted the—Kerhechek uh, submitted those names, and then the filing was made against them the next month on uh, May 15th, I believe. So they filed against those 40 churches, asking for a declaratory judgment— for $1 million in monetary relief and um, pretty much to compel them to obey paragraph 2553. That's the main motion, which is kind of the inverse of what happened in Oklahoma, where two of our churches were trying to get the, the annual conference to follow the provisions of paragraph 2553. So uh, taking a time out real quick, the legal implications of this are big, uh, because if Texas... Uh, rules in favor of the 40 churches, which have now filed for a motion to dismiss. So the initial filing was, here. here's the motion uh, timeline of filings. The annual conference filed to have a uh, motion to, <laughs> oh man, a declaratory judgment that the defendants must comply with paragraph 2553. The defendants then filed for a change of venue that happened, uh, they had that on the 13th of this month, and they were denied the change of venue. This hasn't dissuaded them at all. In the meantime, the the conference has filed discovery against them. They feel like they don't have anything to hide, so they're reporting everything. But they're also now filing discovery against the conference, and they're getting financials, they're getting all kinds of correspondences. I'm optimistic about this being a good thing because very few annual conferences have been very responsible monetarily. There have been some that are monetarily responsible. Oklahoma, where I came from, was not, uh, to my knowledge, still is not, doesn't do transparent financial reporting. And in Texas, once they report these things, you can make them public. So I think this will be great. Um, so anyway, at this point, the, the, the defendants have just filed a motion to dismiss just to get the state to say, no, we have no business here. And so they're trying to put up a, uh, schedule a court date, but the church's council all of a sudden is just very hard to schedule with. And hey, maybe let's put it out till next year when it just so happens to be too late for paragraph 2553 to even be used at all. The churches, for their part, do not seem intimidated at all. Um, uh, talking to, to Adam, it sounds like the remaining 27 are of one mind that they stand in a good position. And even if for some reason the state does not side with them, they're in this for the long haul. They have the money. They have the resolve. They're not going anywhere. They're just going to appeal this on up the chain. Um, so in Oklahoma, the, the, the conference has won kind of de facto because they just kind of tired out and demoralized 
um, the the individual churches that don't have a lot of money. Here, the situation is very different, and it could have huge implications because if they do appeal this up to a larger level, it sets a new precedent, uh, new jurisprudence that could have implications for other churches that just want to walk out the door. So one of the things being entertained now is in Oklahoma, whenever they determined that uh, the state determined that they just can't get involved in, in church matters and that the Book of Discipline is a, uh, a religious document, well, then at that point, what's to stop churches from just leaving and not paying anything? Because the only document in place to keep them from doing so is the Book of Discipline, and the state has already determined that it can't rule on anything pertaining to that. So this, to my knowledge, hasn't been tried yet. To my knowledge, every church that is kind of postured in this direction has gotten threatenings from the annual conference, and they've chosen to play ball and pay a little bit of money. At this point, the only money that they're willing to pay is just a prorated share of the apportionments that they were still a part of the denomination, but they're not willing to pay any unfunded pension liabilities or any additional apportionments. They're at a place where negotiation just isn't going to happen. So the annual conference at this point is sweating because they've already spent most likely over $200,000 on their representation, and the end isn't anywhere in sight. That's conference money that you don't get back. And then if they're not going to get any money from these other churches, then they are blowing all this time and energy on stuff that would be better spent on their own affairs. So it's it's interesting. And then the the final place that just blew my mind was these 27 churches and their pastors, none of them... Well, all of them are now affiliated with the Global Methodist Church. They are now Global Methodist bodies, which I had thought there was a policy that until you were clear of your annual conference, you couldn't join the GMC. But Leah Hitta Gregory and the Mid-Texas Conference has already received their churches into membership. And uh, I don't know if every single pastor is a Global Methodist pastor, but uh, Adam is the one that I talked to. So it's uh, it's impossible to predict the future. I don't uh, I don't believe in that stuff anyway. But uh, as we're looking at what's going on in Rio, I don't think there's any reason to be afraid that these 17 churches this Saturday are going to get um, refused the way that we just saw in um, oh heck where was it that oh North, North Georgia yeah I'm about to report on there. I don't think we're going to see anything like that. I think Rio did the bare minimum of uh, funds that they asked for. But the thing is that in Texas, the law is different, and these churches were in a different position. There are a lot of people that are going to look at this kind of unsympathetically, uncharitably, and go, man, the conference really didn't ask that much money of them, and they could have easily paid it. Why didn't they? And you have to remember, the ethics of this was never resolved. It's just people got practical. But... All the way along, I've been very consistent in saying it is not right to coerce people into paying money if they are to leave. If you want to have a conversation about what is rightly owed and let churches elect what to pay, great, do that. But if you want to stand between someone in the doorway and say, give me money or I'm not going to let you go, that is a bad position to be in. That is that is a, a morally reprehensible position to be in. And these churches know it. So, you know, there are so many churches and other annual conferences that would love to be able to pay some money and go, a reasonable amount of money. You know, so as you're looking at uh, CalPAC annual conference and the gouging that's gone on there, or you look at um, Eastern Pennsylvania and the huge funds they had to pay to get loose, or Baltimore, Washington, 
all of those, I'm sure there are a lot of conservative churches there that would go, man, if only we could have gotten the provisions of Rio, Texas, we would have loved to exit. But the thing is, um, just because somebody's got you bent over a barrel doesn't mean that someone who isn't is wrong to refuse the conditions. Like if there's something fundamentally wrong with the ethical position and you're in a position to do something about it, as these churches in Texas are, I would actually say it's morally incumbent upon them to advance the cause legally so that if on down the line it turns out the annual conferences actually don't have teeth and churches can walk away anytime that they want and they can't be entrapped in coercive relationships, that would do a huge amount of good. Moreover, I, I mean, I've been just frustrated at how much litigation there's been and how much discovery there's been on annual conferences that have not been responsible with funds and, and trust given to them. And yet, for some reason, those who get that information choose not to circulate it. I just think the emperor has no clothes, and there are so many people who don't even know it, and the only way they're going to know it is when people share what they know. Let me go back, and I might splice this together, but just so we're uh, aware of of what Rio, Texas is like. How about let's cover this. Let's go to my spreadsheet here. You'll see Rio, Texas is uh, down here. And as of the close of 2021, they had 339 churches. Now, they've already lost 67 this year. No, 68 this year and last year. That's one-fifth of their churches. They're looking at losing another 44. That'll take it up to at least a quarter of their churches that they've lost. But as I said before, they've already lost um, uh, their three biggest churches, so they're, they've lost a lot more than that financially. Um, when we're looking at comparative stats between them and other annual conferences, they are the 28th largest conference out of 56 in America, and that's by attendance. When you look at by the number of churches that they have in their conference, they are 41st out of 56. Other stuff to note about the annual conference, here's their total income. Uh, let's see, total income for annual budget spending plan, total income. That is uh, between the years 2015 and 2021. You'll see it's largely uh, constant at $101 million. That's, but then when you look at their membership and attendance, it's been cut in half. Well, their membership has been in steady decline. Their attendance has been cut in half almost. So this is this is not a conference that's sitting pretty. This is a conference that's really been having a hard time, and uh, they're looking at losing a lot of money, and they're looking at losing a lot of churches, and they've done their best to put up this strong front, and they it, the question is, are they going to flinch? If they flinch and they let these churches go, then they prevent this going up the chain and changing American jurisprudence. But if they... Uh, if they don't flinch, it goes all the way up, and they could lose everything. So it's a question of uh, who's holding how many cards, and there's no way to be sure. And, of course, I'm not sure at all. But I, I am sure that uh, if churches want to leave, they should be able to leave. So that's that's where it gets very black and white for me. So I'm sure that there have been people say and do unfortunate things on both sides, as always is the case, but that doesn't mean there's not a right and a wrong or um, a side that you can sympathize with. So, you know, you got to feel for Schnazy and other conference leaders that are trying to, to hold things together. But I've said it before, and I'll say it again, whenever you've allowed the waters to get poisoned, you can't be offended when people start getting out of the pool, you know? Um, 
So you can shame people getting out and trying to maintain assets for their churches like he did. Oh, we thank you for all those who have who have done the hard work here and played fair and you know these these bad churches they just wouldn't negotiate. Um, there was a a letter from Pastor uh, Forrest. You see this letter here. Um, this was published. Oh, I don't have a date for this, but he published this in his church whenever they noticed that they were not listed in the last slate of churches disaffiliating. He says, um, the conference has demanded that they pull the, pay the full amount of apportionments and pension liabilities defended by, demanded by the conference and turn in a large stack of paperwork. We've not done these things because we strongly disagree in the required payments being demanded by the conference. In addition to demanding that we pay apportionments an extra year through June 2024, the conference is demanding that we pay for unfunded pension liabilities, which do not seem to exist. Okay, so there was that question of, do these even exist? In making these demands, the conference has refused to consider the nearly $5 million in pension reserves in a designated fund, a fund which uh, Asbury, like all churches in the Rio Texas Conference, has contributed to. So they're saying we should be able to lay claim to these undesignated assets to offset the cost, and the fact that they're not willing to let this happen is grounds for refusing. We have been attempting, he says, to negotiate a more reasonable payment, but the conference has refused repeatedly to meet or speak with us. Therefore, the conference left us no choice to but, but to retain an attorney. And of course, uh, the rest is history. The, the other posturing um, was from the Kevin Reed of the conference board of trustees. And so here's him uh, saying his piece. My name is Kevin Reed and I'm the president of the Board of Trustees of the Rio Texas Conference. As you're aware, the United Methodist Church is in a time of change, with some congregations seeking disaffiliation over the issues of gay marriage and the ordination of gay pastors. In response, late last year, the Board of Trustees of the conference developed a plan referred to as Discerning Pathways. That plan allows those congregations wishing to disaffiliate from the United Methodist Church a transparent, fair, and graceful exit process. Our church is a connected body. We are not independent churches sharing a common name. We are members of a globally connected church. In order to sever that connection, it's necessary to have a process. The board of trustees of each conference is responsible for developing and carrying out that process. Over 30 churches in our conference have already followed and completed the process, and more have committed to doing so in the next few weeks. Sadly, over the last several weeks and months, lawyers have actively recruited disaffiliating congregations, offering to negotiate for them a lower disaffiliation cost or another change from discerning pathways. It has never been the intent of the conference to profit from disaffiliation. The exact opposite is true. The disaffiliation process has substantial costs. A portion of those costs are pension obligations for those pastors who have served and whose families have relied on the promise of pension income upon retirement. So you can see it goes on a bit longer, but there is some mischaracterization there because 
there were not multiple lawyers that went around recruiting churches. Rather, these churches were already trying to intercede. It wasn't going well, so they appealed to one lawyer. The, the directionality of that was off, but also you can't help but notice that he and the bishop both refused to acknowledge that there were funds that could have been redesignated. And that's what a lot of this turns on, is could the conference have been gracious as so many other conferences have been? And it's not just those Texas conferences. Remember the Great Plains Annual Conference completely offset those costs. There were there have been others. Uh, I, I got in trouble in Oklahoma because I was trying to facilitate that as well. Oklahoma refused to do this as well. Had we been in Texas, things might have gone differently. Um, he does make reference in this to the fact that the LGBTQ stuff has been a wedge. Now, conservatives usually are right to say that is not the only thing. We have a fundamental theological disposition difference here. But it is worth pointing out that the conference has been faithless in maintaining the sexual ethics of the United Methodist Church. So Jim Calloway is a, a clergy there who uh, he was part of the Methodist Renewal Team, and he filed charges against another clergy named Barbara Ruth, who had participated, he, she'd performed a gay wedding ceremony. And then Bishop Schnazy straight up refused to pursue the charges. And so Calloway tried to press charges against the bishop, and it, it went nowhere. So uh, along the way, you know, people have come and said, why aren't you enforcing the discipline? And the bishop has said, well, nobody brings me charges. And they've said, well, we know that that he has, and it didn't go anywhere. We know if it, we brought him to you, it wouldn't go anywhere. But you need to defend the book of discipline, whether or not people are filing charges. There are two openly gay clergy appointed, and you would look at Southern Texas and be like, man, nah, there isn't anything like that going on. Two openly gay clergy, one at St. Mark's UMC in Austin, the other is in a town called Referio. And the conference has said that nobody's filed complaints against him, and the churches have answered that they haven't filed because the bishop has said publicly he wouldn't he would hold charges in abeyance, and he said it multiple times. So this is just an intractable thing where they speak out of both sides of their mouth. They refuse to acknowledge very important parts of the case, and because of that, you know, I hope they lose. You know, it just seems to me that there are institutional forces that have really compromised the integrity of individuals who would otherwise have it. Schnazy seems like a solid guy on a personal level, but theologically just doesn't seem to understand what this is all about. Um, it's unfortunate, you know, I, I think the UMC was very well positioned. Here's going to be a final reflection. I'll, I will stop talking. I think the United Methodist Church was uniquely positioned to advance the cause of Christ in America, had huge muscle and organization that could have been used to mobilize for scriptural holiness across the land, but it got compromised and co-opted decades ago by far-left uh, entities that just gaslighted part of the time, were militant a lot of the time, refused to do their jobs a lot of the time. It's been a combination of things that conservatives have tried to faithfully over decades try and correct and work with, and it's been a losing battle. And so that's why you see what you see here. Uh, so I know I've been kind of scatterbrained in all this. I might try and rework some of it so it flows better, but it's just been a lot of different pieces that I've been trying to put together as you're trying to understand Rio, Texas. And in many ways, it's a microcosm of the larger picture, and it's helpful to look at. In other ways, it's its own beast with its own uh, personalities. The churches left behind now are mostly small to middle churches. There are not many big ones left. Um, they're like a lot of uh, conferences. Those churches that have much size or uh, ability to 
uh, do forward thinking have gotten out. So it remains to be seen what's going to happen with these conferences. They're almost certainly going to have to combine with other conferences. All right, so if there's additional stuff you think is pertinent to talk about on here, you're very welcome to write it in the comments. You're very welcome to tell me what I missed out on politely. And uh, you're very welcome to uh, subscribe and follow up with me on additional reporting that I do. Go ahead and pray for the churches in Rio, Texas that are coming together this week. And uh, I'll see you soon whenever I report on North Georgia. So stay tuned. All right, see you folks later.